0: Okay, well, since it's 9 a.m. and no one's awake, we're going to start off with a quiz. What is hermeneutics? Since this is the last class, what is hermeneutics? I'm sorry? A long word. I was hoping for a better answer than that this week. How you interpret the Bible? And when we were doing hermeneutics, what are we looking for? What are we looking for when we do hermeneutics? Authorial intent. What did the author intend to communicate when he wrote his text? Authorial intent is also called the meaning, right? And every passage has how many meanings? One. Just one. That's not popular these days. A lot of people like to say every passage has two or three meanings. But every passage has just one meaning. And the goal of your hermeneutics is to get back to that one meaning. What did the author intend to communicate when he wrote his passage. Today, we're not going to be looking at finding the meaning. Today, we're going to be talking about application. Hermeneutics asks the question, what does it mean? What does this passage mean? Application is asking the question, now what? Now that I know what it means, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to believe? Uh, Dr. Clausen, this is application, relating the meaning of the ancient text to the life of contemporary readers. Now, application is technically not part of hermeneutics. Technically, it's separate. Interpretation is finding the meaning. Application is taking that fixed, unchanging meaning and determining how it affects you today. And it's really important that we understand that this is not part of our hermeneutical process. It's not part of the interpretive process. Because if you try to apply the text before or in the middle of your interpretation of the text, you end up obscuring authorial intent with subjectivity. Because you end up opening the door to reading your needs, your wants, your concerns, your desires into the text. And you start making the text conform to what you want it to be rather than what it actually says. And this is why so many passages are used out of context and incorrectly, because we ask, what does it mean to me, rather than asking, what does it mean? And we get interpretation confused with application. So a person who's sick, who's been sick for a while, they really want to get better, they open up the Bible and they go into the Bible looking for a passage that's going to tell them what they want to hear. God's going to heal me. And then they find James 5, verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. They don't stop to study the passage and ask, what does it mean? But they immediately jump to application. And what do you think an application of this text might be for a person who's sick who's desperately wanting to get better? Absolutely, I'm going to be healed. This is an absolute promise from God. I will be healed because the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. I've put my application before interpretation. Or take Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he w- with me. If we put application before interpretation, what do you think people get out of this verse? Exactly. You have to invite Jesus into your heart. He stands at the door and he knocks on the door of your heart, waiting to enter, and you just need to open the door. Let Jesus in. When you try to put application into the interpretive process, you will inevitably skew what the text actually means, and you'll end up eisegeting or reading into the text your opinions rather than exegeting, pulling the truth out of the text. Because you can't apply the text until you know what it means. The meaning of the text is what determines how it applies. And if you haven't reached the meaning, you don't even know what you need to apply. And if you don't know the meaning of the words on the page, you don't have the message God wants you to have. Which means if you don't have his message, how do you submit to it? How do you obey it? How do you obey commands that you don't know? How can you lay hold of promises that you don't understand? All of that is found in the meaning of the text. Uh, J.I. Packer, Scripture can rule us only so far as it is understood, and it is understood only so far as it is properly interpreted. A misinterpreted Bible is a misunderstood Bible, which will lead us out of God's way rather than in it. Interpretation must be right if biblical authority is to be real in our lives and in our churches. You have to have the right interpretation if you actually want to live under the rule of Scripture. It's only when you determine that singular meaning of the text that you can understand how God wants the text to shape you, change your life, and alter your thinking. This means that application is not part of interpretation. But... While that is true, it's also true that you haven't finished studying the text until you've applied the text. You're not done with your study if you don't know how it applies. Andreas Kostenberger says, Application then is the believer's obedience to the correct interpretation of God's word. Knowledge apart from application leads to hubris, but overt obedience is impossible without knowledge. And so you have to have both. To complete your study, you have to have a knowledge of what the text actually says and means, and you need to apply that knowledge and live it out. Charles Spurgeon, in his book Lecture to My Students, warned young preachers about the danger of learning the text and not applying it. And he describes a preacher who did this. He had a whole bunch of facts But he didn't live any of them out. Here's what he said about him. We've all heard the story of the man who preached so well and lived so badly that when he was in the pulpit, everybody said he ought never to come out again. And when he was out of it, they all declared he never ought to enter it again. Like when he's in the pulpit preaching, he's doing well. The moment he's out of the pulpit, he forgets what he learned. And he goes right back to his sin. He goes right back to his ungodly lifestyle. Scriptures are filled with warnings to those who hear and learn, but never apply what they learn. Jesus, in Luke 6, 46, he says, Now why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Lord here is the word for master. Every master has a slave, and every slave has a master. To call him Lord is to acknowledge that he is the master, and you are the slave. And his question is, why are you going to call me that if you're not going to do what I tell you to do? Luke 6, verse 47 and 48. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug and went deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the river burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. The one who builds his life on the words of Jesus, who hears and obeys, he will be secure. When judgment comes, he has nothing to worry about. But what about the one who hears and then does not obey? Who does not apply the text? Verse 49. But the one who heard and did did not do accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. To hear the words of Christ, to study the Bible, and understand what the Bible means, and then not apply it is to sign yourself up for some judgment to know the Bible, and then to not live it out is to be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 2, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and keep, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. Scribes and the Pharisees knew the law. They knew it so well they taught it to other people. But when it actually came time to living out what they knew, they didn't do it. And the remainder of that chapter, of chapter 23 in Matthew, is Jesus rebuking them as hypocrites. Scriptures don't just paint the hearer only as a hypocrite destined for judgment. To know the commands of Christ and to refuse to apply them to yourself is to demonstrate that you're not a believer. 1 John 2, verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We have a church, we love to learn about the Word of God. We love the Bible, we love learning the truth. Some of us are really big nerds, but we need to love just as much applying that truth to our own life and living it out. If you love the study and the books more than you love the application, something's wrong. James warned against not applying Scripture to yourself. He says that to hear and then not to apply is to delude yourself. James 1, 22, But become doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. There's two sides of the coin there's hearing and understanding, and then there's applying. Bernard Romm, in his book, Protestant Biblical Interpretation, said Holy Scripture is not a theoretical book or a book of theological abstractions, but a book that intends to have a mighty influence on the lives of its readers. The only way it can have a mighty influence on your life is if you take what you've learned and you apply it. If you want to be a faithful Bible interpreter, you must faithfully apply the text. That's why God has given you a written text. A text that you can go back and you can study and you can use throughout your life and that you can obey it. And if you have no intention of applying what you're learning, Please stop learning. Because you're just going to bring more judgment. Application is a vital necessity to any Bible study. But the reality is, application is probably the hardest part of your Bible study. Like, you know, if you're a nerd, getting into the books and reading the commentaries or doing the line diagrams and the block diagrams and parsing out Language. If you're a nerd, you enjoy that kind of stuff. But doing application is hard, it's mentally taxing. Uh, Brad Clausen, it is often easier to apply the principles of interpretation to a text than it is to apply the results of interpretation to one's life. And then Dr. Clausen provides some reasons why people don't apply the text, why people avoid application. First one, I'm not going to give all of these. I'm just going to give a couple of them. Laziness. I get into the study. I find a whole bunch of little golden nuggets in the text, things that are really cool, really exciting. I get the basic meaning of the passage. And I think, wow, that was fun. I'm done. I don't need to do anything else. Because all of that was fairly simple. It was pretty straightforward. If I just follow a process, I'll get the meaning of the passage, and I'm good to go. But to apply the passage, I really have to think through it. I really have to meditate on it. And that's hard work. I just don't want to do it. It's easier to move on to the next passage and go get another little golden nugget somewhere. Another reason people don't apply the passage. Rebellion. I don't really want to submit to what the passage says. This passage is calling for me to do something hard. It's calling for me to do something I don't enjoy. If you truly try to apply the text to your life, it's going to demand radical changes at some point. And by avoiding the application, you can avoid making those changes. You can avoid having your conscience stricken. And then someone can hold on to their sinful conduct. They can hold on to their sinful attitudes. They can hold on to behaviors that God hates. You can harbor pet sins. You can continue to live your way instead of submitting to what the text says. I just don't want to have to deal with it. And I'd rather do things my way than God's way. And so in rebellion, I'm going to study the text and then just not apply it and not look at how it applies to me. I think of this as like the ostrich sticking his head in the sand. I'm just gonna pretend like it I, did, I didn't see it. Laziness, rebellion. another reason. discomfort. Nobody likes to be uncomfortable and especially if you're reading the text and it's kind of you know hitting home, it can make you extremely uncomfortable. And there's nothing more uncomfortable than the part of the study where you actually apply the text to yourself and it begins to expose those hidden little corners of your heart. Sometimes Bible study hurts, and we don't like it. We don't want it. If I just avoid the application, I don't have to experience that pain, I don't have to feel that hurt, and I don't have to be uncomfortable. Last one. Last reason people don't apply the text, a lack of knowledge. Application is hard. The other parts of Bible study, the other parts of the interpretive process can be taught pretty easily, and you can learn what the process is, but application is not like other things. It's not like interpretation. If you wanted to know how to make a loaf of bread, and you have never made homemade bread before, how many of you could figure out how to go home and make a loaf of bread? Right, you can Google it and get the recipe. And if you just follow the recipe and do it the way the recipe, if assuming the recipe is correct, most people can figure out how to make a loaf of bread. There's a step-by-step process. And if you say, well, bread's kind of complicated. Okay, fine, let's go to something simple. A peanut butter and jelly sandwich. If you just follow the process, you can teach a child to make their own sandwich. But the reality is, when you talk about application, there is no step-by-step process to follow. And you read the books on hermeneutics and studying the Bible, and everybody has their own different way of doing it. And most people, they do it, and they don't even think about how they do it. They don't even have a process. They just kind of do it. Andrew Nicelli, this is a long quote. You can teach and apply the Bible for decades without carefully thinking through exactly how you move from exegeting the Bible to applying the Bible. It's typically not something that others teach you as much as something that you catch by observing others do it. Most people do it based largely on intuition or instinct. They don't think about the mechanics, just as when you type a sentence on a keyboard, you don't think about the mechanics of typing. Or when you drive a car, you don't think about the mechanics of driving. That is to say, they do it. They just couldn't tell you how they do it. They've never stopped to actually think through the process or think through what steps they're going through. And so I tell you that because, well, I don't have a step-by-step process for you this morning on how you can apply the text. I have some guidelines for you that can help you apply the text, but it's not a step-by-step process. Guidelines for application. First guideline, distinguish descriptive and prescriptive text. Distinguish between descriptive and prescriptive text. Or to say it another way, is the application of my text limited to the culture in which it occurred? Is it bound by time and culture? Or is it principial? Does it transcend time and culture? Prescriptive texts provide teachings or exhortations that can and should be applied to everyone universally. You go and you read the passage, and it doesn't matter what time or what culture you live in, it's applicable to you. Now, these texts will have how many meanings? How many meanings does the text have? Just one. But a prescriptive text can have multiple applications. Some of the applications that you can use in a text don't actually, well weren't actually thought of by the writer when they wrote them. And the author would have never considered applying his text in that way, but yet the text clearly applies. Let me give you an example. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's the principle here? Looking and lusting is sinful. Is there a modern-day application of this that Matthew would never have considered? Internet. Matthew had no clue the internet was coming. He had no clue about photographs or video. And yet, that is a very clear application of this passage in modern-day context. In the modern context, using the internet to look at pornography would be a form of looking and lusting, and thus we know from this passage it must be sinful. Everybody see that? Is that the only way you can apply this text? Are there other contexts where you can look and lust? A million of them. And this would apply to all of them. Does this only apply to men looking at women? It can be reversed to look and lust. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It's sinful. This text has one meaning but it can have a multitude of different applications based on that one meaning. We'll come back to prescriptive texts. We'll be talking about those just about all morning. Let's talk about descriptive texts. Descriptive texts are only applicable to people in that historical situation. That is to say, they are culturally bound. They have value today because, well, they're in Scripture, but they're not necessarily applicable to you. Let me give you an example. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 26. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Is that a principial passage? Does that teach a principle for all of life? Every culture, at every time, in every place? If you make this passage prescriptive, you might say that this passage forbids handshakes at church. Any Christian greeting, if you take this principally, any Christian greeting must be with a holy kiss. Is that what Paul's trying to get at? In your study of this passage, you'll learn that this was just a custom. This was part of the culture of that day. This is not referring to a romantic kiss. This is a sign of Christian love, Christian affection. And over the next couple of centuries, church fathers and church councils had to deal with this because people were taking this as prescriptive. Now, you can only imagine where the sinful heart can take this. And it became a point of scandal in the early church because now you had church members trying to go and kiss members of the opposite sex of church. Clement of Alexandria, the shameless use of a kiss occasions foul suspicions and evil reports. It's taking a descriptive text and turning it into a law or prescription for how you are to behave. This was a cultural practice of your day, of the day, not your day, the day of the text. This passage was not, is not to be prescriptive, to be applied to all generations. Paul told the Thessalonians to use this greeting for a very specific reason. Why? Because Paul wasn't there in Thessalonica. And this was the customary way to show brotherly affection to another person, but he's not there, so he tells the, the people who received the letter, greet the brethren for me. It would be kind of like you today saying, hey, you know, I'm not going to be at church today. Would you please give so and so a hug for me? That's why Paul used it. It was not a command for everybody else. Let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Is this descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive. If I take this as a prescription, as telling you what you must do, how would I apply this passage? No longer drink water exclusively. Drink more wine. That's what Paul's saying, drink more wine. There are some sinners who would love that command, wouldn't they? Just drink some more wine, that's the solution. Or is Paul saying that wine is the only medicinal use? We try to use a little historical context. We say, well, he's telling them that as a medication of the day, Therefore, the only medication for a sore stomach is a glass of wine. You see, if you take it as a prescription, it really turns out to be not very good. When you understand that this is descriptive, it's describing what was going on in that day. Water was purified by fermented grapes, by alcohol. And if Timothy had vowed not to drink alcohol, he was only drinking unpurified water, which from the beginning of that sentence, no longer drink water exclusively, it seems like that's exactly what he was doing. He was drinking nothing but unpurified water. And doing that might cause him some stomach problems. And Paul's just turning to him and saying, hey, Timothy, you know, you would be a lot more fruitful in your ministry if you would just purify your water a little bit with some wine. That would be helpful to you. This is descriptive. It's describing what was done at that time. It's not a prescription for everyone at all times. In both these situations, the passage is clearly limited in its application of the text. The meaning of the text is only applicable to that historical situation. And so when a a passage is limited by the text, we limit our application. Here, the application is limited by the text. It's limited to only Timothy in that time period. There are some questions you can ask of a text to help you to understand if it's descriptive or prescriptive. This is adapted from Robert Robertin McQuilkin and Roy Zuck. They both have books. Uh, the first question you ask Is the passage addressed to all believers or specific historic individuals? Not all statements in Scripture were directed to everyone universally. Take the Old Testament ceremonial law. Who was that written to? Israel. Should we apply the Old Testament ceremonial law to us today? No. New Testament very clearly says don't apply it to you today. And in that sense, scriptures indicate it was not written to you. Or Matthew 25, verse 62. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Put your sword back. That's a command. Who's speaking here? Jesus. Jesus is giving a command. Put your sword away. Is this descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive. It's descriptive because it applies to who? Peter. Jesus was not giving a command to the soldiers that were there. He didn't tell the soldiers and the guards, put your swords down. He told Peter. It wasn't a command to all the soldiers in the Roman Empire. It doesn't apply today to people who practice fencing. It doesn't apply to military officers who have a sword with their uniform. Matthew's not writing to any of them, and historically, Jesus was not speaking to any of them, and he had no intention of his words being used in those contexts. There are passages that are written to all believers, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It's the Great Commission. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. The Great Commission, however, is written to who? It's written to the disciples of Jesus. It goes to all of them. And by looking at the audience, who is this passage written to, you can determine whether this is talking about a a descriptive text or a prescriptive text. Another question you ask, does my application conflict with other scriptural teachings? For the sake of clarity, let's just stick with Matthew 26, 52. If I apply this text as being universal, And it's applicable to all men everywhere. That Jesus is commanding you to put away your weapon. That would mean that Jesus' command to put down your sword applies to anyone and everyone who who might consider using a weapon. So if I take this as prescriptive, I might understand this to say I have to be a pacifist. And the use of weapons is now sinful in every context. But wouldn't that contradict other passages of scripture? Do you remember who told Peter to carry a sword? It was Jesus. Luke 22 36. And he said to them, But now whoever has money, has a money belt, is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword should sell his garment and buy one. If Jesus is saying here that you're not allowed to use weapons under any context, then. Why did he tell them to go buy a sword? Second, government authorities in Scripture are commended for bearing the sword. Romans 13, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. If I interpret Matthew 26, when Jesus tells them, put down your sword, and I take that as being prescriptive, there's an obvious contradiction here with Romans 13. The last question, does Scripture make the behavior normative? Does Scripture make the behavior normative? That is to say, just because Scriptures record a behavior happening in the past does not mean that you are expected to engage in that behavior today. Take Colossians 4, verse 1. Master, show to your slaves what is right and fair, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Is Paul here speaking about slavery? Is he saying that everyone should be a slaveholder? He's talking to a slaveholder. He is mentioning the behavior of owning slaves, but he is not commending or even commanding you to be a slaveholder because he's talking to slaveholders here. He's not normalizing that practice. The idea here is, if you are a slaveholder, here is how you are to behave. Let me go to one that's not as controversial. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. If I were to try to make this normative, I would say this is talking to husbands, ergo, every man must be married. Do you see how we can twist the text here? This is not saying every man or even every woman in the verses previous where he talks about what wives are to do, it's not saying that everyone must be in this condition. Everyone must be a husband or everyone must be a wife. It's saying those who are husbands and wives need to follow this command. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually commends those who are single and commends singleness. So that question there is, does it make it normative? Does Scripture make the behavior normative? If it doesn't make it normative, it's descriptive. Last question on this one. Is the passage teaching a moral or theological principle that is repeated and never revoked? God's standard for morality, his teaching about himself, these are both universal principles that are true regardless of the time or the culture that you end up in. And when God gives a moral or theological teaching and he never revokes it, that means it's still in force. You still have to obey it. Example, Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. What's being taught here? Principle is, if you murder someone, the appropriate punishment is the death penalty. Killing another human being without cause is worthy of the death penalty because killing another human being is to attack someone made in the image of God. And God repeats this command in the Mosaic law. Exodus 21, verse 12, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Has God ever revoked that principle? Has he ever taken that back and said, Oh, guys, never mind. I didn't mean it. That means that principle is still in force. God today still holds the position that murder should be dealt with by the death penalty. Once you've determined uh, that your passage is prescriptive and applicable to you today, now you can go on to some of the other guidelines. Second guideline, identify a universal principle or truth from the text. Even in passages where it's talking about a context that you're never going to be in. For example, you read the book of Exodus. A lot of what's described in Exodus you will never experience. You will likely never be enslaved in Egypt. You'll never be delivered from that slavery by 10 massive divine miracles, then be led through the wilderness for 40 years, have to have water gush from a rock, have manna rain from the sky. None of that is ever going to happen in your life. And yet when Paul writes about the book of Exodus and he writes about those events, he said this, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave things as they also craved. Crave evil things as they also craved. He uses those events in the wilderness, not necessarily to talk about what you should do the next time you're enslaved in Egypt, but to teach you a principle. And he says those things are there to teach a principle of how you are to live. And the principle he wants us to learn is that we should not crave evil things. And we can extract that principle from this text. And in fact, this passage is a primary text for teaching on the idolatry of the heart. Paul says we should not crave evil things that God has forbidden, just like we, the children of Israel should not have been craving those things. And he equates their desires here to idolatry. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, these people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Paul says, look, they've been craving and desiring these evil things, and that is a form of idolatry. And he quotes the Old Testament. Anybody know where that quote is from? It's Exodus 32. And when accusing them of being idolaters, you notice he does not mention the golden calf. He points to what? Eating, drinking, and stood up to play as a euphemism for sexual sin. Their strongest desires. Paul looks back at those events in the Old Testament and sees a principle. Desiring things that God has forbidden or denied is a form of false worship. Even though we'll never be in those exact circumstances, we can look at the text and extract a principle that we can apply to our lives. And you go throughout Scripture and you find the same idea of dealing with ungodly desires. Uh, Titus 2, verse 12, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires. We're to consider our bodies or the members of our body as dead to evil desires. That's Colossians 3, 5. Luke 17, this is a different topic. Can you extract a principle from this passage? Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. What principle can you extract from this passage that you can apply to your own life? Be forgiving. Okay. Can you extract another principle that defines a little bit more about your forgiveness? It's continual. I am to always be forgiving. It doesn't matter how often the person sins against me, I am to forgive. Can you extract any other principles you can apply to your life? Repentance. If he repents, you are to do what? Forgive. You see how you're just taking the text and you're extracting a basic principle and that principle is what you apply to your life. Uh, Notice at the end there, he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. You notice how it doesn't say if he returns to you 70 times, proving his repentance? Forgiveness is granted based merely on saying, I repent. A basic principle you can pull from that. 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Can you extract a principle from this text? You should desire to read the Word. That's a principle. Word of God is helpful to help you grow. You see how we're just taking a basic principle from the text and we're saying, how can I apply this? None of these passages that we've looked at were written to 21st century Americans but yet all of them teach some kind of principle that is universally applicable, that applies to you. Identify a universal principle or truth from the text that you can apply. Third thing, third guideline. Ask what the passage teaches about God. You're going to find there's a lot of um, similarities between doing application and doing meditation on the text. This is one of the ways we... We meditate, is we just ask questions about the text. What does this passage tell me about God? And what are some of the necessary implications of whatever this passage says? So take John 4.24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does this passage teach you about God? God is spirit. One of the implications of that is, you can't see him. Any other implications? What else does God as spirit teach you about God? There's a right way and a wrong way to worship him. That's at the end of that, right? You must worship in spirit and in truth. There was someone else who said something. He's worthy of worship. He deserves to be worshiped. What about that opening phrase, God is spirit? He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. What does that say that he is not? He's not like me. Anything else? If God is spirit, then he is not human. He doesn't have flesh and bone. He's not made of wood, stone, or metal. He cannot be seen. He has no shape or form. He cannot lie. If he is truth, then he cannot lie. Someone said something else back there. Don't make idols. These are implications of the text. I can learn about God because I can read the text and then I can think through the logical implications. And the implications of God as spirit means he has no flesh and bone. Can I go to another passage in Scripture and prove that? Yeah, Jesus, when he came back after the resurrection, said, see me, I'm not a spirit, I have flesh and bone. That God has no form. Can I go to another passage and prove that? He has no form, yeah. Uh, Exodus 15, verse 11: Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders? We can ask the same question here, but I've got 11 minutes, and so we're going to keep moving. But you can ask the same questions here: Who is like you among the gods? the The basic principle we learn about God is that He is unlike any other so-called God in the universe. There is no one like God at all, and you can do the same thing with Psalm 139. But for the sake of time. Let's keep moving. So ask what this passage teaches about God. Ask how the passage applies to you. And I'm just going to give you some, some questions that you can ask. How does this passage apply to you? Does it tell you who you should be? Does it describe your life and how your life should appear? Does it tell you what your goals in life should be? Does it help you set your goals correctly? Does it command you to behave or to act in a particular way? Is there a truth that you need to believe? Is there a promise I need to believe and to claim? Does the passage correct my thinking? Is there thinking I need to avoid? Is is this a teaching on how I'm supposed to pray? You see, we're just asking questions of the text. There's no magical secret here. We're just asking some questions. I know what the text means, and now I need to see how it applies to my life. And I do that just by asking basic questions. And there are a multitude, an an infinite number of questions that you can ask of the text about your own life. And if, let's say, there's something that it says it's commanding me to do, does that mean I, is there some area of my life that I need to repent? Is there an area of my life that I need to add something to my life? Go back to John four twenty four. Does this passage apply to you? How? I see people shaking their head yes. How does this apply to you? Yes, sir. Right? This. I mean, this has major implications for your worship, right? And like he said, you have to be able to worship with a knowledge of the truth, and your worship must be in line with truth, not with just how you feel. Right? Now, yeah. a right understanding of the passage. It says Ephesians 4:24 that's Ephesians 4:31 Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Is this commanding you to stop certain behaviors? And it's not just outward behaviors, it's commanding you to stop certain attitudes and beliefs and internal desires. Or James 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance, and let, it, let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Can you apply this to you? If you were to ask some of those same questions of this passage, you would understand how this passage applies. Ask how this passage applies to you. Last one. Ask how the passage applies to various categories. These come from Mark Dever. This is just thinking in categories of how the passage might apply to different categories of life or different categories of people. What are two basic categories of people that you find in Scripture? Saved and lost, believer and unbeliever. The non-Christian, the unbeliever. Does this passage give a warning to the unbeliever? Does it give a promise if they repent? Does it tell them of promises that are available in Christ? Does he have a promise of judgment? How does this passage apply to an unbeliever? And this, by asking these questions and thinking in categories like this, it's going to open your mind up a little bit to consider how passages apply in different areas that you haven't thought of before. Does the passage call the unbeliever to act? Does it call them to repent, to believe, to fear, to flee? Is it calling them to do something? And if so, what? You can also think of categories of salvation history. That is, how does this passage fit within the context of salvation history? When I think about from Adam and Eve all the way to the consummation of all things, where does my passage and what's described in my passage, how does it fit within all of that? How did God use this truth or this event to bring about salvation? As a result of this passage, why should I worship God? Uh, You can think of the category of Christ himself. In the Old Testament, does this passage foreshadow or point to Christ? What does it teach about him? How does the text describe Christ? What does it say about his person, his work, his authority, his nature? You see how you're just thinking categories and you're asking questions on that one category and seeing if the text applies? What about your work, your job? Does the passage apply to my employment? When you read passages like in Colossians 4 and it's talking about slaves and masters, can you apply what it's saying there to a job? If you take a master in a modern context, it'd be like a boss at work and you're working for someone else? Does it teach how employees are to strive and to work? Does it teach how employers are to treat their employees? Marriage and family, does it teach about the roles in the home? Does it teach about the role of men, the role of women, the responsibilities of the husband or the wife, the responsibility of the children? Is it teaching about how the family should be functioning? Or how about this one? The local church. Does your passage teach about the role of the local church, the importance of the local church? Does it teach about membership at the local church? Does it describe how how you are to serve in the church? Does it describe who is to serve? Does it explain how the church is to worship? And there are many other categories. We don't have time to go through all of them, and I didn't put them all in the presentation, but there are many other categories that you can look at and you can think about. And again, all of our application is based on what? That one meaning. We don't go outside of that one meaning. We take that meaning and we look at how it applies to our life and all these various categories. Okay, any questions on application? Great point. Yeah, she said it sounds like there are times where the answer to these questions is, no, it doesn't apply. And that's absolutely true. Not every passage is going to talk about Jesus, as much as we would like it to. Not every passage is going to talk about the function of the church. Not every passage is going to tell you how you are to behave or to live. But we could ask the que- these questions of every passage to see where it does apply. Good point. Any other comments? All right, well, this is the last class for hermeneutics, like I said at the beginning. I think next week we're going to be starting a 12-week series on theological cults and bad theology. So Pastor Michael is going to do six, and then I'm going to teach six. So be here for that, right? Let me uh, close this in prayer, and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Uh, We thank you that we have your word, that we have an infallible, inerrant revelation from you that we can go and we can study, that we can learn from, that you've condescended and written in such a way that we can study, that we can understand it. And we do ask that you would help us to be better students, faithful interpreters who apply the text and live out what we learn. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.